Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about scope. We're talking about a game scope, what that means, how to not let it get out of hand, what you need to abstract, what you need to leave in there, how it affects the theme, all the goodness that goes along with the project, with a new game design. And we're talking to Gil Hova. Gil, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much, Gabe. Great to be here. Man, I'm, I'm excited about this episode. You you are uh, a guy I really look up to in the gaming industry. Oh, I've you. read all your blog posts. I, I've you know I love many of the games you've you've designed. I love the networks. I think it's just an incredible oh, thank you. design. Uh, I'm, I'm stealing some ideas from it as we speak in one of my own game designs. And so and, I, I, and I'm a big fan of the league. Also, let's get that out of the way right now. Well, I appreciate that. For anybody uh, listening, that that's a game I'm working on. Uh, it's a game that was in the cardboard Edison. Uh, contest that that didn't win, but I was a finalist, which is amazing. I am still just beside myself happy. Uh, that, it's a really great game, man. I appreciate that, and I'm excited about where it's going and, and what the potential is for that. And and I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit with just some abstraction yeah. and kind of different ways to handle different things. Uh, Absolutely. But Gil, first of all, just in case people haven't heard of you, maybe they don't know who you are. Kind of give me your bio, your background, just kind of the b- brief synopsis about who you are. Sure. So uh, I run a small game publishing company. Uh, out of Jersey City uh, called Formal Ferret Games, and that's my outlet for all my own games. So uh, I'm a self-publisher. I design games and I publish them myself. Uh, my most well-known, my most well-known game is The Networks. Uh, that's a game where you're all running TV networks, and you start the game with three terrible TV shows and a small amount of cash, and you're trying to get the most viewers over five seasons. And so that's uh, that's one game I have. Uh, another game I have is Bad Medicine, a party game where you're all pitching horrible pharmaceutical drugs to each other. And uh, I am in the process of releasing my third self-published game, which is Wordsy, which is a word game that actually allows you to use longer words. So uh, those are um, those are my three games. I also had a couple of other games that other publishers released. Uh, I had Battle Merchants in 2014, and I had Prolix in 2010, which is the word game that Wordsy is based on. So that's uh, a little bit of my ludography. Um, before I was a game designer, I started designing games in 2000, but... Prolix was published. My first game was published in 2010, so it took me 10 years to figure out yeah. which you know which end uh, to hold. Uh, and before then, I uh, I've edited sound for film. Um, I've been a computer programmer. Um, I've attempted to be a musician, but it turns out I'm a really awful musician, etc. Uh, etc. Et yeah, and now you're the uh, the new co-host over at Ludology, over at the Ludology podcast as well. Yes, yes, I do a lot of podcasting. So um, Jeff Engelstein graciously asked me to join Ludology uh, to take the unenviable step of following Mike Fitzgerald. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I really respect Mike, and I'm very excited to see where that goes. I also co-host another podcast called Breaking Into Board Games with Ian Zhang and Tony Miller, uh, and that's all about, as the title says, breaking into the board game industry, uh, and that's been going really well also. So I'm, I'm very proud of both of those podcasts. Yeah, now was there like a, a really rigorous interview process where you had to beat up some other designers to get on Ludology, like stiff-arm some people out of the way? <laughs> it, it was kind of like a, a several-year thing, because I actually have known Jeff for a while, because uh, we're both based in New Jersey. Uh, so we go to a lot of the same conventions and we've done events where we've done panels, uh, 
we did one panel uh, about writing a rule book and we did another panel about theme and mechanism. So uh, we've done a lot of, uh, we've already done some stuff together and we know we get along well and we have um, similar approaches. We have very analytical we both have very analytical approaches to game design. So uh, I'm very grateful he uh, he picked my name. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm really excited to just kind of see where you guys take the show because it's no matter what, it's going to be different than it was because you got new viewpoints, new perspective, that kind of thing. So it's going to be really interesting to hear the next however many episodes. Hopefully you're on there for a good long while. Yeah, me too. I hope so. I mean, it's been like uh, Mike has been on for Mike was on for half as long as Ryan. So mathematically, I should be on half as long as Mike and <laughs> I think the uh, the next host would be on for half as long as me, which would be like half a show. So I'm guessing that for a person that's fired halfway through a show. <laughs> right. Well, it'd make for provocative podcasting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Great listening. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, let's get into the end of the episode. We're talking about scope. Yeah. We're talking about a game's scope, which is kind of a... It's a strange term. That's not something that comes up in just normal day-to-day life. So let's let's just kind of talk about that. What is scope in, in game design? For the, the purposes of defining it, this episode, what we're going to call scope is uh, – because there's a few different ways you can use the term. Uh, so for this episode, we're going to say what is part of the game and what is not part of the game. Like what can you do in the game uh, and what is sort of implied in the game and sort of off the canvas, you know? So, for example, in the networks, uh, there are a few things that are not in scope. Uh, like for example, uh, you're, uh, when you see like, like each show has a printed value each season that says you tells you what it's going to be worth each season. It's not a random number, you know, whereas in real life it would be a random number. That randomness, uh, was, I decided was out of scope for the game. It just didn't, it didn't fit in with what I was trying to do. Um, one thing that really impressed me with the league, with your game is it's a multi-season GM sim. Uh, so you're a general manager of a, football, of a football team, and you're going year to year. And most people, when designing a game like that, would have players get injured. Yeah. Like, injuries would be part of the game. And your game does not have injuries, and it's a better game because of it. Ha- if it had injuries, uh, it would be really... It, that's a really tough thing to put in that, because yeah. uh, you're generally going to put that in... Like, if you want to be totally realistic, you'd make it random. And that is not fun, because... It makes the game's decisions less meaningful. Um, I mean, yes, it's more realistic, but the fact that you decided, okay, this is out of scope, uh, that that means that uh, injuries are not going to be a part of this. And that shows, uh, and the fact that it's a better game because of it, that shows the importance of scope and saying, all right, this is where I'm going to draw the line. Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, in the original prototype for the game, there were injuries. And it would come up as cards that your opponent could play on you. So, like, before mm-hmm. a game, they could play, oh, your quarterback's injured. And the mm-hmm. first game I ever played is me and my wife. We played it, and she played that card against me. And I looked at it, and I said, I hate this game. This is <laughs> – that is that is garbage. Because I, yeah. I had better dice. I was going to win. It looked, you know, the odds were in my favor. She played that card, and it took out a chunk of my dice. And I was like, this is not fun. And so yeah. right there, I was like, man, this – okay, this is realistic. Yes, your quarterback can get injured. But that is not fun, and it, it kind of yeah. messes up the balance of the game as well. And so I think that really, those decisions really have to be made when you're really determining what is the scope of a game. I looked it up earlier, just kind of Googled scope, and it came up with this very interesting uh, definition that I think it's, it's not quite dead on, but it's got some similarities to what I feel like in board games what we're talking about. And it says, project scope is the part of a project 
uh, in the planning that involves determining and documenting a list of specific project goals, deliverables, features, functions, tasks, deadlines, and ultimately costs. In other words, it is what needs to be achieved and, and the work that must be done to deliver a project. And I would, for the game design space, I would turn that into to deliver an experience. So like these yes. things that go into delivering this experience that you're trying to achieve, what components, what mechanics, what you know, parts of the theme need to be abstracted. I'm looking forward to talking about abstraction with you in a minute. But what, what needs to be realistic and what needs to be stepped back and go, okay, that might be realistic, but it's not a game. It's not fun. So I feel like that's, exactly. that's an interesting uh, way to look at exactly. it as well. So one of the first things I need, think you need uh, – not well, one of the first things a designer needs to figure out if they're making a game that's thematic – uh, especially on a real-world subject like running a TV network or yeah. running a football team, is are you making an, uh, a, a game for entertainment, like a recreational game, right. or are you making a simulation? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with either. I mean, simulations are great. If you want to make a simulation, there is an audience for it. But it's going to require a different mindset and a different approach. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's in scope with uh, with a simulation, but one of the things that may not be in scope is use, is player agency. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you may just say, "All right, well, you don't really have a say." You know, your quarterback got injured because that's how football works, right. and that's that's part of a simulation. You know, it happened to this team, it happened to that team, it happens all the time in real football, so it's going to happen here. And so, um, uh, so if you're making that kind of game, that's fine. Uh, for the networks, you know, play testers would be like. Well, wouldn't it be great if, uh, for example, you could have a show that uh, did better all the way through and it gave you a reward if you never canceled it? Yeah. Uh, and for me, you know, I said that's not – so one thing about, my, about the networks is the fun of the game is getting new shows, right. is canceling shows and putting new shows on. If you're ever incentivized to keep a show on the air, you're – incentivizing people to disengage from the core of the game. Yep. Uh, so I decided that that wasn't going to be part of the game. You know, that's sort of a, a canonical rule in the, in the final season. In the shows can run four seasons. Well, they have four seasons worth of stats on it. Uh, I should rephrase. Uh, so in the show, in a show's fourth season, it's going to bottom out and it's going to be terrible. And if you keep it on another season, it's just, it just stays at that low number. And that's like a crucial rule because that will push players to constantly turn their networks over and engage in the core of the game. Uh, so, you know, people would be, would ask questions like, you know, why can't I get a reward for keeping uh, something on? You know, that, that would be like syndication, you know, so I can get a syndication bonus and that would be realistic, you know, and they'd say, why can't I roll a die to determine um, how valuable the show is because that's how it works in real life, you know, or how come, you know, I'll put on a show at 8 PM, but then it turns the show never airs because there are production snafus, and that happens in real life. And all that stuff would put it in the realm of simulation, yep. which is fine, but I wasn't. I decided from the start I am not making a simulation. I'm going for something that players will have um, a good time playing a recreational game that they'll want to replay. And that's about player agency, you know, where their decisions make a difference and where they enjoy making their decisions. Like in the networks, when you put on a show and you put the perfect star on it and you put it in the proper time slot, you feel great. You're like, this is awesome. I did exactly what I wanted to do and the game rewarded me and this is great. And there's no die roll. There's no like point where, okay, I did everything and now I got to wait on pins and needles to roll the die roll because it doesn't work that way. It's like, 
okay, well, I did what the game wanted me to do, and look at this, I rolled snake eyes. And that's not, a lot of times that's not dramatic. It's just kind of, it just kind of fizzles. It's not, not that great. So there was another early decision I made uh, was to keep the show's um, output of viewers fixed. Um, and we'll talk a little more about that in a moment. But, uh, you know, these are sort of early decisions that I made that I said, okay, I'm going to stick to these uh, because these are going to keep the game interesting. And every time playtesters challenged me, you know, I would consider changing it and I'd sketch how it would look like changed. And it would never, it would be like, okay, this violates, uh, this would make the game more of a, a simulation, which is not where this game wants to go. Because I try, if I bring the game down in that direction, it's not going to be what I want. And this is a tough design skill is to, because you can't listen to all your playtesters, right. you know? You've got to be like, okay, I'm going to, um, I, I hear what you say, but you want a different game than what I'm making. And so you have to be able to tell that apart and say, okay, I, I need to continue to make my game, and there's some feedback you just can't implement. Yeah, and like you say, it's, it's really a, a design ability that you gain as you do it for a long time to discern what feedback to listen to, what suggestions to listen to, and which ones to say, okay, I see what you're saying, but that's not what this game is. I think that's a very, very valuable skill because especially with a theme like TV or a theme mm -hmm. like sports or whatever, there, it's so easy to get lost in all the little details. I mean, if you start thinking about all the possible things that could happen at a TV network, okay, uh, your main star gets pregnant. Okay, now what are you going to do? That's going to mess up different things. You know, if if you have an executive and a, and, a, and a star that fight about something and now the star gets fired, now what are you going to do to rewrite the show? Like, there's so many things you could get lost in if you just let the game run wild and do what it wants. And so, mm -hmm. you know, whenever you're figuring out a theme or figuring out the experience you're trying to, to create with the game. What's your process of determining what goes in and what, what doesn't? So it, it depends on, um, it depends on what kind of game I'm trying to make. And this is something I've gotten better at. Uh, when I first started the networks, I was awful at this. I was really bad. So, uh, a, a game like Battle Merchants, for example, I arrived by kind of like a Roomba method. I just bump into things and be like, "Oh, I guess this didn't work. I guess that didn't work. I guess this didn't didn't work." And slowly but surely, I started learning game design by learning what not to do. And that happened through, I'd say, the first few years of the network's design process uh, and development process. But nowadays, um, I've got a pretty good spidey sense of saying, "Okay, this is where my game is." This is what the fun of the game is. Now, Kevin Nunn, um, Kevin is a, a, a Texas-based, uh, Houston-based game designer. Uh, he's designed um, Duck, Duck, Go is one of his big games. Um, Nobody But Us Chickens is another one. He designed that uh, Bruce Lee game that came out a while back from yeah. Ape Games. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, Oh, and he also co-designed um, the Sentinel's Tactics. So, you know, he's a very he's a busy game designer, and he's taught me a lot about game design. He was one of my first game design mentors. Yeah. Uh, so Kevin talks about core engagement in a game. Like, what is... This is something he picked up from the Critical Hits podcast, and it was just such an important point, and it blew my mind when he mentioned it. It's like, what is the core of your game? What is the part of your game that you'll... Re that you... Uh, that, that really brings people in? I mean, you could sort of call it a hook, though you could argue that core engagement and hook are two slightly different things, but they're, they're related because they both speak to this, this focus that I think you need to have from the start of your project. 
Um, and sometimes early on, you may not know what the core is. You may not know what the hook is. And that's fine as long as you sort of acknowledge that and say, okay, well, I'm looking for this hook, but that's the first thing I'm going to find before anything else, before the graphic design, before a cool theme, before a cool name, before any of that stuff. you got to figure out, okay, what am I working towards? Because that's your signpost, you know? That's sort of the center of your design. And um, if you stray too far from that, you're going to be wandering in the desert for like 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, that's that happens to a lot of designers. It's happened to me, you know, just sort of wandering around this infinite de design space uh, saying, well, I can go left, I can go right, I have no idea which is better. Yeah. But when you start from the beginning and say, okay, my vision of the game is a core experience that does this, then I think you have a much sounder foundation on which to build. Uh, Jeff Engelstein uh, talks uh, on ludology, uh, which <laughs> I'm so happy to be a part of now. Uh, Jeff uh, talks about when he starts a design, he'll actually write out his intended experience, almost like a mission statement. Yeah. Like, what does he want the game to evoke in the players? And it's not about the theme. It's not about the mechanism. It's more about a feeling. Does he want the game to feel frantic? Does he want the game to feel placid? Does he want it to feel competitive? Does he want it to feel cutthroat? Does he want it to feel more like a family game? Does he want to feel make it feel more like storytelling? You know, what what is he trying to evoke? And then he can start making design decisions that push him in that direction. And that brings us right back to scope, because once you have that core engagement, uh, you can start saying, okay, this will work with what my design is, and versus this, which is totally outside what I'm trying to do. Like, I'm trying to make uh, a game that is sort of approachable and family-friendly, so these cutthroat cards that let you steal from other players maybe don't have a place in this game. Yeah. Uh, or, on the other hand, maybe I'm making a cutthroat game, and there's this thing that lets me cooperate with another player, and maybe that doesn't belong in the game. You know, maybe there's something that lets everybody get everything, and I want the economy to be tighter because I want players to bicker and fight over it, you know? So... There, those examples show, you know, there's not a, there, it's not like one mechanism is bad and one is good. It depends right. on what you're trying to design towards. Yeah, and I love the idea of writing down and putting it on the page, not just having it in your mind, yeah. but writing it down where you're trying to go with the game. You know, I've talked to so many people, young people especially, that wanted to start a business or wanted to start a nonprofit or a ministry or something like that. And they kind of, they just run out and they start doing all these different things. And I'll, I'll say, hey, where are you going? Like, what are you trying mm -hmm. to accomplish? It's like, well, I'm, I want to make money or I want to help these people or whatever. It's like, well, step back and really figure out specifically what you're trying to accomplish because yeah. what you need to do is every decision you make should point towards that mission, that mission statement or that vision, whatever it is, that no matter what you do, every decision points back to that. And so in a game, it's no different. If you're trying to create this experience where at the end of the game, players are standing up and it's that last final die roll and you've got that big yep. moment, if that's what you really want, then every decision in the game should lead to that. And there shouldn't be these exactly. moments of like sitting there analyzing numbers and looking at this chart. Well, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And so, yeah, I love that. And so if you're designing a game right now and you don't really have a mission statement or what you're trying to accomplish, step back and figure it out and write that down because I bet it's going to, it's going to, really change the way you design the way you, uh, the, the design choices you make for your game yeah the dirty truth is that there's no single right way to go about things right. there's so many different ways that work 
Uh, and so, you know, that's why you get somebody says, well, this is how I work. And then another person says, well, I work in a totally different way. And they both work for those people. But the reason is those people are designing towards different goals and they're trying to accomplish different things. And so if you know early on that you're trying to make a game that does X, Y, Z, then you can make the design calls that uh, go towards X, Y, Z. Like if you're trying to make uh, – here's here's a great example. Um, if you're trying to make a game – that's um, like a word game. So one thing, that, like Wordsy, for example, some people suggested to have um, like a deck of cards that when you revealed it would be a subject, a category, and your word would get a bonus if it fit in that category, which, you know, on the surface is, oh, that's cool. That adds a, an extra element of it. Well, yes, it does. But I wanted Wordsy to be a, a game about making long words. Like yeah. that is the appeal and the core of Wordsy, you know? And there are some things that you have to adjudicate uh, periodically. Like there's, a like there's a rule in Wordsy that you can't use a word that somebody used previously or a modification of that word. Mm -hmm. Well, what's a modification of that word? Well, if you look in the rule book, I actually listed f uh, exactly what constitutes a modification. And that catches about, I'd say, 90 to 95% of the cat of those uh, those examples now five percent might slip by they're you know they're not mentioned in those rules so they're technically allowed even though players might be like oh well you know I guess it's it kind of is and if they got to vote on it maybe they'd say it's a modification but my point being I wanted something that was very clearly adjudicated because the core of wordsy is making long words so I wanted to be like um, I wanted it to be like, is this allowed? Is this not allowed? Yes or no? Um, there's challenge rules that are very black and white. Uh, you can challenge someone. You know, if you lose points or they lose points based on who's wrong. But it's not the kind of thing that you can really easily game because there's no incentive. Like, you don't get points for a successful challenge. So, again, you know, this is something where the point of the game is not to challenge. It's just there if you need it. Uh, the point of the game is not to bicker over whether this is – this word is a modification of a previously used word because you could just look it up in the rule book. And getting back to that deck of cards, that deck of cards didn't fit in Wordsy because I didn't want players to argue over, well, is this a sports term? Right. Is this a kind of building? I mean, that's not what that what the game is about. So uh, that's, again, where that, uh, where, where that scope is. Now, there might be another game. That's exclusively about bickering. You know, yeah. it's not that I think the bickering mechanism is bad. I just didn't think it fit my game. But you might build build another game where the whole game is about that bickering. But I think the key thing to recognize is that bickering is core engagement. That's that's a core, and that would have to be a central part of the game. So what you do is you make that you make that game and you make bickering a central part of it, and the whole game is just about you trying to justify using that and trying to convince the other players to let you. You know, and that could be a really fun and hilarious game. It just doesn't co it just doesn't coexist peacefully with a word game where you're trying to come up with really long words. Yeah, and I think one thing that's really important about what you're saying right there is you you mentioned that people would tell you or people would ask you. Well, that implies that you're playing the game with other people, that it's on a table, that it's in a prototype form, that it's being tested. And because I know from my own experience, there were times where I'd be in my notebook. And was writing, writing, writing ideas and all these mechanisms and, and different things I could do and ways to make it real thematic and all these different things I could bring in that are, oh, that's just like real life. And I could represent it with this mechanic and do this and that. And it would live in my notebook and it would get so big that by the time I felt like, oh, okay, maybe I should really work on this game. I'm like, well, it's, it's way too, this is huge. Like, <laughs> what, do, what do I do with this? And so what I've, what I've really learned is get to 
find a stopping place early. Don't just keep writing all these ideas, you know, make a prototype, play the game, play it with somebody and then find that core engagement and then start maybe adding to it. But more often than not, you're going to take things away. That's what I found. I put all these things in and I'm like, Oh, that's not fun. Cut that. Oh, that's, Oh, that's real life. That's realistic. Oh, it's not fun. Cut that. And cause Mm -hmm. as soon as you get it on the table and it's a real life thing, it's not just in your head or not just in your notebook, you start learning what the real scope is. Cause maybe it's not always exactly what you thought you, you kind of went in. Okay. I want this experience. But then how do you achieve that experience? Well, getting it on the table and playtesting it is really the way to figure that out. And so what, what have you learned through playtesting that re- has really helped you scope a game to where it needed to be or where you wanted it to be? I'll put it this way. To me, playtesting, to me, is design work. Yeah. Like playtesting is, to me, the core of design. All the stuff you do, like writing in notebooks and you know, no matter how nice your moleskin is – it's not that's not really design that's just sort of brainstorming yeah. that's coming up with an idea i'm sure if you're listening to this podcast you've probably heard this already but i'll say it again ideas are cheap yeah. ideas are easy anybody can have an idea you know so uh and your your point gabe is is right on the nose because the moment you get that thing out on the table it's going to just have a life of, of its own. It's going to start bucking and, and jumping different places. And sometimes your job is to follow the game. Sometimes your job is, oh, okay, well, I thought the game was going to be this, but in reality it's only this. Yeah. Um, now, I heard a story, and I'm pretty sure this is true, um, but wh- what I heard is when Apples to Apples was originally being designed, it was originally called Apples to Oranges, mm-hmm. And from what I understand, uh, it was more like Cranium, where you know there were like four different activities you could do, yeah. and depending on what space you landed on, and one of those spaces was the game we now know as Apples to Apples. And when Out of the Box was looking at the game, they realized you know the game was okay, it wasn't bad, but really what everybody was enjoying was that one bit of the game. That yeah. was what everybody really liked, and the rest of it was like, okay, this is okay, but I want to go back to that spot. So... What they did was they took everything else out and they just made the game that one little thing. And, of course, it became a mega, mega, mega hit. Right. Uh, and that's, I think, an example of following where the game wants it to be. And there's another a story, maybe this is apocryphal, but I've read this in several places, uh, where Klaus Teuber, when he designed Settlers, original, his original prototype uh, was Settlers... Cities and Knights, and I believe uh, Lowenhurts was uh, that early uh, game that he had that eventually became uh, Domain. Um, So it was like a mashup of all three. And when Cosmos took it, they said, well, this is good, but it's it's really a lot. And so he whittled it down into what we now know to be Catan, you know? So sometimes you've got to follow it. And honestly, that whittling process, that starting with a lot and moving down to a little, that's totally valid. I've heard other people talk about, um, as a designer, are you a painter or are you a sculptor? Like if you're a painter, you're going to start with a blank canvas and slowly add, 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 add. Whereas if you're a sculptor, you're going to start with this enormous block of granite and you're going to chip, chip, chip and remove stuff until you have it. And they're both valid ways to work. You know, um, it's weird because I originally was a sculptor and, um, until recently I've become a painter and I find for, for me, that was kind of a tough transition. Like for the networks, um, that started as, um, it always was a middleweight game, but, and I was always, you know, my play testers sort of tried to, 
helped me along. They, they found that the soul of the game wanted to be like a middleweight game, a fairly simple and streamlined game. Um, but late in the playtest process, I added the genre bonuses because there's various genres of TV shows. You know, there's dramas and there's sitcoms yeah. and so on. And you get a bonus if you get three or five. And that got added very late to the process. And I was petrified of adding that. I was so worried because it added so much complexity. Like this was a whole new thing that you had to add and was it going to justify its weight? Uh, Richard Garfield talks about a complexity budget, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, how complex is your game and how much complexity can it hold? Like right. if this is an 18 card micro game, it cannot handle very much complexity at all. If it's a 10 minute party game. It can, it can handle barely any complexity. Whereas right. if you're talking like a three hour war game, or, or a crunchy economic sim, then it can handle quite a few exceptions and fiddly bits. Uh, so here I was adding this big new section to the networks, and I was expecting it to crash and burn. And I was stunned when suddenly, like, I played in the first playtest of it, and I'm like, oh my god, I've got strategy. Mm -hmm. I've got something I'm moving towards. And even though it was com com complex, it added... Uh, it added, it brought so much to the table. It did so much lifting to the game that it belonged there. So there are times when adding, even adding a big mechanism, is is something you need to do. But it's it's a stressful call, you know. It, especially if the game, you know, the networks was close to done at that point, and you know, I knew that there wasn't much wiggle room. And thankfully, I just found this perfectly sized hole that I could stick this mechanism into. And that's not always going to be the case. Sometimes there's going to be like stuff you have to shove out of the way, other mechanisms mechanisms you need to ditch, and so on. Uh, so that's that's tricky when you get this thing late in your game. You know, to bring it back to the subject of the conversation, uh, that seems like you know you're not sure if it fits in the game scope, or you're not sure if it um, if it's going to fall just outside the game scope. Um, ultimately, you may have to just test it to, to to try it. And just like Rob mentioned on a previous episode, you know, just because you're moving forward trying something with a prototype doesn't mean you can't move backwards. Right. You can always fork it. You can always say, "All right, well, I tried it. It didn't work. Let me go back to the previous version." I mean, you sh if you're if you're doing um, if you're being careful with your uh, with your prototype and you're keeping your old versions of your prototype, uh, you should be able to um, to just revert to an older version, and you should be fine. Uh, but yeah, don't let that stop you. Don't say. Um, if I move forward, I'll never be able to move back. No, your game design isn't a shark. You can go backwards. <laughs> right. And don't fall in love with anything. Just because you add oh. it and it's a great idea doesn't mean it's going to work, doesn't mean it's fun. I, I've gotten to the point where almost like Eric Lang, like, mm -hmm. I really like this mechanism. I think this mechanism is great. I don't trust it. <laughs> this thing is probably horrible. And it, it, it's not that it's horrible. It's probably a really great mechanism that just doesn't belong in the game, you right. know? And it's got to really prove itself at this point. So if I, I've got this cute and, like, darling mechanism, I'm going to be watching it really closely. Does it belong in the game, or is it just, like, a sentimental thing that's attaching it to it? Uh, absolutely. And one more thing. If you built your game around a mechanism, and I, I keep on bringing up the points that Rob brought up, yeah. but that's just Rob. You know, he's he's just full of, like, really good ideas. But if you if you built a game around something, and then it turns out that... It's, it's entirely possible that that thing you built the game around, the game doesn't need it anymore. It could just be scaffolding, you know? You could just have needed it for the construction of the game, and its purpose was to get you to that point, and then you just drop it like a booster engine, you know? Uh, for um, both the networks and battle merchants, those both started as auction games using this really 
I'm going to use the word clever, but you have to listen for the air quotes, yeah. uh, this <laughs> clever auction mechanism uh, that everybody loved that I thought was really cool. And yet when I put them in both of those games, when I'm sorry, when I built the games around those auction mechanisms and I showed them to people, people were like, oh, this game's really good, but the auction doesn't really fit. <laughs> uh, so it was actually in another game before. So I've had three games that have rejected that auction mechanism. And I, I've said in the past, oh, it's out of chances, it's out of chances. And a few weeks ago, I realized a way that I might be able to do it. So um, I have a fourth game that's using the auction mechanism, and it's entirely possible it'll reject this one too. Right. We'll see. Yeah, but you just keep trying. You keep working with it. It's all about the yeah. journey, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And one thing, you know, is something that's actually been attributed to you, a quote that, that people say that you say, and it's find uh -huh. the fun. Right. Is that yours? Did you come up with that idea? I don't know if you did or not. You can have it. It's yours. Uh, uh, I've heard plenty of people say it. Uh, so I, I'd say don't attribute it to me. I mean, I have said it in the past and it is an important thing. Uh, but I've heard so many other people say it. So, yeah. you know, yes, I have said it, but somebody <laughs> said it before me. Gotcha. Well, I've said it over and over again to people yeah. working on games. It's like, OK, what about this and this and this? It's like find the fun. Like what yeah. part of your game is fun and focus on that part and try to get rid exactly. of everything else. You know, one yeah. with this football game I've been working on, you know, to me and to a lot of people that have played it, the fun is the season. You've got your players and you're rolling these dice and you're playing these games and you're, you're trying to win and you're trying to you know, do these different things. And that's the fun part. And actually in, in the last latest round of, of playtesting, somebody said, can we just start here? Can we just like start with this? Because originally you had you know the off-season phase where you're building up your team, you're adding players, you're trying to make them better, you're adding things to your stadium, you're doing things that an owner of a team would do, right? Yep. Which is... You know, but really that's kind of getting you to the fun. It's a way to get the fun to be more fun, and I'm still working on that. But And, and the guy's like, can I just can you just give me a bunch of bums, like a bunch of really not-so-good players, and we just start right here, and we start rolling dice and playing games and figuring it out? And I was like, yeah, maybe. Let's try that. You know, And it's like, yeah, why don't we just start right here where it's fun, where people are enjoying the game? And so it's another thing to keep in mind. Wherever you find the fun, try to get there as often as possible and maybe even start the game right there. If you've got a battle, oh, yeah. a battle system that's really fun, people love the battle system, start the game in a battle. Like, don't start yeah. the game where you have to do the journey and read the story and do this and this and this. No, like, throw people right in the action. If you think about movies, a lot of times they will start a movie in the middle or even at the end at this big, dramatic, tense scene where the, the hero, maybe he dies, maybe he doesn't, whatever, maybe he saves the day, I don't know. But they'll start there, and it hooks people in, and it grabs them for the, from the first minute. And if you yep. can do the same thing in a game, I think you, it goes a long way with keeping people engaged, getting them right there where you want them to be for that experience. Yep, they call that in Medea res or in Medea res. Uh, I've heard it both ways. But okay. yeah, that's exactly what it means. You start in the middle of the action. Like the way Star Wars Episode Four starts, yep. you know. it. Star Wars Episode Four does not start with Leia finding R2-D2 and putting the Death Star plans in them. R2, uh, Star Wars starts with a giant spaceship chasing a tiny spaceship and lasers flying left and right. right. I, that's where it's, And so with the moment you see that as a 10-year-old kid, like the first thing you see is a giant star field, then this large spaceship class, passing by, then this enormous spaceship yep. following it. I mean, and that's how it starts. That's the first shot past the crawl. So, um, and that's, and that's why they did it is because they wanted it to start at an exciting moment. And then you could figure out all the stuff that happened before it through exposition. And it's a, yeah, it's the same way with board games. I played board games where um, – I played prototypes, I should say, 
and heck, I think I've probably played some published games as well, where the first few rounds are scripted and everybody does the same thing. Right. And, you know, I've told the designer, well, all right, can't we just bake this into setup? You know, right. why are we doing this when these, 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 these decisions are just fake decisions? And it's just uh, these decisions have been made for us already. Just start us at the point where we make our first meaningful decisions, uh, you know, so we can start in Medeiris here also. Yeah, and going back to what you were saying earlier with the core engagement, core mechanic kind of thing, start people in the core. Like, don't start them in secondary things to get to the core. If if you have a, an experience you're trying to create, drop them right in to that experience yeah. right off the bat. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, getting back to the scope of of it and to the uh, and to the abstraction of it, I think one thing that I was really impressed with the league also is and. Get, relating also to finding the fun, uh, players in the league never get worse. Like they never deteriorate with age, and I think that's great because the game is just. I think it's just three or four seasons, right? Yeah, just three. Well, it's about to be four, but the game you played okay. was three. Yeah, I played a three-season yeah. game, and it was. It, it just didn't have time for that. You right. know, it wouldn't have been meaningful if a player doesn't get as good. Like if, if the player gets worse, I should say, instead of better. You know, instead you have this building thing where each season your team is going to be better than the previous season. Uh, you know, that's because that's interesting and that's fun. The question is, are your is your team going to be improving faster than your opponents whose teams are also improving? And that's an interesting question. And that's where the fun of the game is. Um, it absolutely finding the fun and finding where the game is so you can make these decisions of scope and you can make these decisions of one thing I find myself um, saying to designers a lot is uh, this is where your game is or your game isn't here. Your game doesn't live here. You know, this this whole mechanism, this whole part of the game, that's not what your game wants to be. You can drop this part of the game and focus on this part of the game because this is where it's interesting. This is where it's fun. This is where your game comes alive. Yeah, that's great. And let's get into the abstraction of things because that's so important oh, yes. when you're scoping a game, when you're really trying to figure out – where it needs to be, because it's easy for an hour-long game to turn into a three-hour-long game because you put too much in there. And so <laughs> there's certain things that just need to be abstracted or just not even talked about, not even dealt with. And so when you're abstracting things, for, like, for instance, for the networks, when you're abstracting different things, one, how do you decide what needs to be abstracted and what doesn't? With the networks, it was, I feel like I backed into it. Okay. You know, I feel like I got really lucky. Um, I... I actually stumbled I, – I backed into the theme because I had the mechanism first because I had this auction and I had this uh, – it was originally called MacGuffin Market. It, you know what a MacGuffin is? No. What is that? Okay. That's why I'm not ever going to call a game MacGuffin Market <laughs> because uh, plenty of people uh, – I mean it's no fault of yours. You know, It's not like yeah. it's not like it's a bad thing. Most people don't know what a MacGuffin is. I've heard you know? of a ragamuffin um, but never a MacGuffin. <laughs> so a MacGuffin is a film term. Um, Alfred Hitchcock – I don't know if he coined it, but he, it's, it's certainly been attributed to him. Um, it's an object that everybody, every character in a film is chasing and everybody wants, okay. but the nature of that object is unimportant. Gotcha. Um, so the object could be a, a statue of a falcon. It could be a briefcase. You know, a lot of times, unfortunately, you know, this being film and this being, you know, film being like male dominated, sometimes it's a young lady. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just uh, commentary on film right there. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, it's a, it's something that everybody wants, but what that actually is, is immaterial to, to a film. Like if you could change that briefcase to a statue or a set of tapes, uh, then it's a MacGuffin. Yeah. So, uh, I, 
I was really frustrated. If you will go back to that auction that I was trying to implement, and at this point it had been two games that the auction had that had rejected the auction. So I'm like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the game totally themeless. Like there's not going to be a real theme to the game. So the players are just bidding on MacGuffins, you know, because okay. they don't care. Because you as the player, you don't care what the object is. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of you're invested in in bidding on it. You know, so so I called it MacGuffin Market. Uh, you're bidding on these MacGuffins, and uh, then you could also get these gems and run the gems through MacGuffins. Because, hey, that's what MacGuffins, that's how they work, right? right. Um, and, of course, playtesters correctly called me out on it, and they said, y- you, know, I, you know, I think it's cute and I think it's clever, but it's just too many rules for such a non-theme. So, you know, it was like grumble, grumble, so they're <laughs> right. So um, we talked about alternative themes that we could do, and, you know, somebody recommended movies. And, of course, you know, there's Kinesius Tron Fabric, uh, yep. Hollywood blockbuster, Dream Factory, those are all the same game. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the biggest movie-making games out there. It's a very good game. Uh, and so I didn't want to do movies, but I'm like, TV, hang on. Nobody's really done a TV game in a while. So, like, there's the old Avalon Hill game TV Wars, but, you know, this was, like, 2011, 2012 that I did the re-theme. And I'm, I was like, okay, well, let me explore this. So the MacGuffins became TV shows, and uh, the gems that you ran through the MacGuffins became stars. Um, uh, weirdly, I had them be male stars and female stars, which created this really kind of bogus gender binary that I didn't really need. And then somebody said – that really kind of bugged me. It was, it was rubbing me the wrong way. And then somebody suggested to me, where are your ads? How come there's no ads in the yeah. game? I'm like – Wow! Why didn't I think of this? So I got rid of the genders and I made one of the genders. So I just made them ads instead of stars. And then I started. Then uh, somebody said, "Why do you have to pay money for ads? Why don't you get money with ads?" I'm like, "Oh, that's perfect! You know, because now thematically you get money when you pick up an ad, and that yep. makes the ad different than a star mechanically. And it feels so much better. So I feel like I backed into it so many ways. That, you know, I had the set of mechanisms that just lent itself to it. You know." So in terms of abstraction, uh, I figured pretty early on that I didn't want to determine the show's value randomly, like for reasons I mentioned before. Um, To go a little bit deeper into that, uh, I'm going to go back to something Jeff Engelstein says about input randomness and output randomness. Um, So input randomness is uh, – so people complain about randomness in games, right? They'll say, oh, this is too random, too random. But I think you can get a little more specific because you've got these two kinds of randomness. So you got input randomness, which is when a random event happens before you make a meaningful decision. And then you got output randomness, which is when it happens afterwards. Um, And I've personally found that I have a really hard time making a game with output randomness. Like I have to be really careful. I've got to treat it like a spice. Um, And I have to put it in just the right place in a very controlled quantity in order for it to work. Because if I just slather it all over the place, it's going to obscure anybody's decisions and nobody's going to know. Like, nobody's really going to care what they do because the output randomness is going to stomp all over everything. So to give you an example, for example, let's say you're playing a card game and you get a hand of cards and you pick it up and then you decide what to do with those cards. Bam, input randomness. Mm -hmm. That's input randomness because... The random event was getting a random hand of cards. Right. Uh, let's say you're playing a combat game and you decide you're going to attack the dragon and you decide you're going to use your plus three sword and you're going to also cast the spell of the dragon. And then you roll a bunch of dice to determine what happens. That's output randomness okay. right there. Yeah. So I'm um, 
so I so let's say I made this TV game, and let's say that I decided that I'm going to make it um, that you roll to decide how many viewers you get after you decide what show you're going to put on, after you decide what time slot to put it on, after you decide what stars to put on the show. That's output randomness, and that would have been that would have obscured the meaningful decisions of the game. Uh, if you go back to the point, you know, you get this Fiero moment, this great moment where you get the perfect show on the perfect time slot with the perfect star, and you say, yeah, that's awesome, because you know exactly how much it's going to get. Yep. If you have to go to a die roll, you know, nobody's going to cheer like, yay, I got a plus five modifier, right. you know, because you still have to roll the dice. So uh, that just wasn't as interesting. Uh, but I think what I backed into, and this is the interesting bit, is there's still a variability that happens. Uh, and the variability winds up standing in for the output randomness. And people like that. People f are satisfied with it. They feel that it comes close enough. And by variability, I mean if you put the show in the wrong time slot, you get fewer viewers. Yeah. If you put the wrong star on it, like if you put on a comedy star on a drama, they're not going to perform as well and you get fewer viewers. So there's a variability to the number of show, the number of viewers you get from the show, but this time it's up to you. Like you could say, all right, I'm going to make a suboptimal decision, but I need to make that suboptimal decision now because if I wait another season, I'm going to get hosed, right. you know? So it feels better. You know, it feels you've got agency in there. Now, this is not to say that output randomness is bad and you should avoid output randomness because the league has output randomness. And yeah. that's a big feature of the league is you determine your games by rolling the dice. Right. But I think the reason the league gets away with it, uh, there's a few reasons. Uh, the first is um, you get this thematic feeling of what is happening in the football game. Yeah. I think the decision... To, so with uh, I don't know if uh, listeners are familiar with the game, but the way it works is the dice have um, on their different faces sevens and threes. And that's really smart because the scores that come out are football scores. Yep. So when you play, you're, you can even picture, oh, this die came from my quarterback. My quarterback made this great pass. Um, you know, oh, I got an X. That means I cancel one of my opponent's dice, which means my defense made a stop, you know? So you get to tell the story of the game. And there, if the game is close, you can roll coach's dice, uh, which means, okay, at the very last moment, you know, we did a two-minute, we, we ran a drive, a two-minute drill, uh, took it down the field in the last 30 seconds of the game when you kicked the big field goal to win it. I mean, right there you tell a story. Yep. And you tell an amazing story, and it's 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 familiar, and yet it feels good. It feels right. And so that's, for me, I, I have a hard time doing that. And that's one of the reasons why I really respected the game, because it, it could tell that kind of story through output randomness. So output randomness will flatter some games more than others, and it's your job as a designer to know which way to go. So to go all the way back to answer your question, Gabe, um, you know, to, to, to know like what to abstract. I mean, for me, a long time for a long time it was trial and error. You know, uh, I didn't know at the start that, you know, I was just going to use input randomness instead of output randomness. And I was going to give the variability to the players and then do it that way. You know, now that's a technique that I'm using in future games. And I think it's a really good and solid technique. But um, it's uh, it's not one that I um, came in knowing about. I kind of backed into it. and I got really lucky backing into it. Yeah, and just thinking about my game and the abstraction of the games, because, I mean, again, going back to experience, I want a player to experience the owner's perspective 
in the game. And so that that means you're not making choices unless you're Jerry Jones and, and the Cowboys. But you're not making choices on the field about what the players are doing. You're literally sitting in the press box and watching it happen right there in front of you. And so in the game, a, a, a game in the season of, of football games is just a roll of the dice with some modifiers and there's different things that you can, you know, manipulate the dice in some ways. But it's one roll of the dice, look what you scored, look what you you know, what defensive stops you got, compare it, you win or you lose and move on to the next game. And so a game is over in just a, a matter of moments. And because there's games like first and goal that do the whole simulation of the actual game and choosing plays and doing different things, they do that really well. But that's what that game is trying to accomplish. And so, again, it goes back to what you're trying to accomplish, what needs to be abstracted. Because with, with my game, if you're an owner, you're in the box. You're just watching it happen, and then you're trying to make sure your ticket sales are up, and you're trying to worry about your the next stadium upgrade and then adding in that, that extra parking lot over there to bring more uh, visitors. You know, you're thinking about all that stuff, and the game is just kind of a real quick thing. Now, the game yeah. is important, and you get a lot of victory points for winning games, and, and you get more money and all that because that's what makes sense. But, you know, you got to figure out what needs to be abstracted, again, based on that mission statement, based on that experience you wrote down early on that said, this is what I'm trying trying to do. Yeah, the fact that games are games literally take like five seconds to play, yeah. as in the football game that your team plays, not yeah. an entire game of the league, but the game that your football team plays. You play, I think, three games in a season, and then and then there's the postseason. Right. And so each of those is just just decide what dice you're rolling. Roll the, I mean, figure out what dice you're rolling. Roll those dice, count it up. Maybe play a few cards, but you're only playing like one or two cards at most to determine uh, what happens. Maybe your coach die comes into it, and that's it. You know, So right. it doesn't take very long. So there's just the bare minimum of decisions necessary to make it interesting. But, yeah, you wanted that feeling that it's, you know, you've, you've put the team together and now the team's playing out on the field, and it's your decisions that um, are hopefully guiding it, but the players ultimately control it. Uh, and that's really hard to do. Like every time I've tried that, it winds up coming out unsatisfying. And somehow you you've come across a way to do it that's it's satisfying. So like for me, I can never do that. I always have to. I prefer input randomness because for some reason in my designs that always seems to work better. But it, it's it's just that's a personal thing. You know, there's some designers who are much better at working at output randomness. Right now, what what are some games that you've worked on and tried to abstract different things and it just didn't work for whatever reason? Oh my gosh, um, I'm trying to think about it. Um, I had a very, very early game called Body Parts uh, that was supposedly about um, uh, building a monster. This is a theme that pops up every once in a while. Yeah. You know, you know, you, you get your legs, your head, your arms, your torso, put it together, and then get a lightning bolt and you animate the monster. Right. So it was pretty much rummy, you know? <laughs> um, so uh, originally I had this huge scoreboard mechanism and had all these things where the the players you know mess with each other and had the the villagers advancing with torches and pitchforks and it was all these clever ideas and nothing really clicked you know uh this was like i was three years into it i still remember like showing it to someone at like just an open game day and that guy was so angry at me because (laughs) he was spending one hour playing this horrible homemade game whereas he could have been playing san juan you know right Uh, so (laughs) I I felt terrible about it. Uh, but, you know, 
I, I, I learned since then that when you have a raw game, if you can find a local playtest group with other designers, better to stick it on them because they don't mind it when a game is terrible. You know, they, they love it when a game is terrible because, you know, they get to figure out what's going wrong and right. they can say, oh, well, this is what was happening and this will make your game more interesting. You know, we designers love that stuff. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that was an example. Like, I had no idea what to abstract and what not to abstract, you know, uh, because ultimately you want to leave in the things that feel thematic and yet give the players a sense that they're still making meaningful decisions that have somehow had some sort of influence over the game. That's, yeah, it's a tricky call to make, and I had no idea how to do it back when I was doing my body part-themed Rummy game. It just, it just didn't work. Uh, and, uh, and it's funny, I later played, uh, there was a card game that came out in the mid-2000s called Havoc, The Dogs of War, and had a very similar mechanism where it was kind of like uh, you were building rummy hands, but you were playing them out one card at a time. So you kind of could spend a few rounds bluffing, um, making out that you had like this big straight. You know, you could play a five and then you could play a six. And if you, the next card you played was a seven, you'd have a really big straight. And then it turns out you play a two. So it just turns out you were just bluffing. And it turns out that game did a much better than my game did. So I figured, okay, well, no need to work on this game anymore. Uh, so in terms of that abstraction, um, like I just couldn't find the soul of it because I abstracted the wrong part of the game away. You know, I abstracted away the actual building the monster bit. You know, I had nothing about going to cemeteries. I had nothing about um, putting in the wrong brain, you know, putting in the Abbey normal brain instead. Um, you know, there was some things that sort of felt like it, but ultimately you were playing rummy. It wasn't it just wasn't right. Um, thinking about games I haven't designed, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but I remember uh, reading about Avalon Hill at one point made sort of a mod of Advanced Squad Leader that was actually a football game. Okay. Uh, so it was football, but with Advanced Squad Leader rules, which meant it was incredibly immaculately detailed, yeah. you know, down to the player's cleats. Uh -huh. The problem was it took, I think, two or three hours to play a down. Whoa. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were in such a crushing level of detail. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it was, so that was, I mean, you know, that was back in the, I think that was in the seventies, you know, before there were computers, you know, so if you wanted that sort of level of detail, that's how you had to do it. You know, yeah. you didn't have a computer, uh, crunching the numbers. You couldn't do something like, something like Dwarf Fortress, you know, where there's something else. Let me stick with computer games for a while. Gabe, I'm sure you've played front office football, right? Uh, no, I actually looked into it, though. I, I researched it when I was working on my game. I haven't played it, but I know what you're talking about. I've, I've seen how it plays. So for those of you listening at home, and obviously, you know, we're Americans. We're talking about football. We yeah. we mean gridiron football, NFL. Uh, we don't mean association football, uh, a.k.a. soccer. Yep. And soccer is a perfectly good word for it. Don't give me any grief about it. <laughs> um, so it's short for association football. But, uh, but front office football uh, was a championship manager-like game where you run a football team uh, through, several, through as many seasons as you wanted. And you had to worry about salary cap. You had to worry about drafting. I lost many, 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 many nights to front office football. It was a marvelous, marvelous game. 
all text. It was pretty much a spreadsheet. You were just looking effectively at spreadsheet after spreadsheet, yep. but it was just so perfectly done. But they occasionally, like, they would come out with some with a new with new features every season, and some of the season some of the features weren't that great. And I think this goes to abstraction also. Uh, this is tougher to do in a board game, but I think it's still an, an interesting design lesson. So one thing they wanted to do, one thing the designer of front office football wanted to do one year was he wanted to model clubhouse chemistry. He he wanted to model like some players just really getting along and that having like an impact on the team. So he modeled that with zodiac signs. Okay. So uh, one of the things you'd get on your player report is what sign the player was. So the problem that wound up happening was when your team didn't do well. Well, how come? Was it because they underperformed? Was it because just like a crucial fumble? Or was it because you had a cancer next to a Sagittarius? I don't know <laughs> if that's right or not. I don't know horoscopes at all. Um, right. But I, I think that was an example where that was too much abstraction. Mm. And that's um, I mean, that's something that is much more possible in computer games where you let the computer handle a lot of the number crunching. But if you put too much under the hood, uh, the players don't exactly know what happened. You yeah. know, um, like Jane McGonigal talks about... Uh, four characteristics of games and two of her characteristics of games are uh, goals and a feedback system for those goals. So, um, so you need, so for example, a goal of front office football is win enough games of the season to go into the playoffs and then eventually win the championship. Right. Um, and the feedback system you get is whether you win or lose each game in the season. And if you lose, but you don't know why you've lost, like if you lose, but you see, oh, well, it's because I got 58 rushing yards this game. My running back is it's either my running back is a problem or my offensive line doesn't have good enough run blocking, you know, and then you start looking at those numbers and be like, oh, I lost my right guard and my backup right guard is terrible. And that's why that happened. Um, And then you start. But if you look at those numbers and you're like, well, they're okay. And now I'm going to look at the astrology signs. Let me check my astrology charts. But these two are adjacent. Is that okay? Is that not okay? There wasn't enough visibility. There wasn't enough feedback. Um, So that's, I think, an example of when you abstract the wrong thing away. Um, And uh, obviously for board game design, you know, since uh, board gamers have uh, more of an idea of the reason why something failed because we're effectively the compiler – um, as far as uh, if you're going to use the computer game analogy, then uh, you know we're probably going to see why a role succeeded or failed. But at the same time, if you're doing a combat game and you've got like three zillion modifiers and you've got these five modifiers give you a plus five and these other modifiers give you a minus five, so it winds up being a zero, hmm. it might mean sort of the same thing that you're obscuring the meaningful decisions and you got to take a step back and say well what am i trying to incentivize you know what behavior am i trying to get the players to engage in right and one thing i really hate is when i play a game and i get to the end and let's say i win the game and people go how did you win like what did you do to win the (laughs) game and i say i don't really know i don't know exactly what i did differently than you except make these couple random choices that you went left and I went right. And maybe that was what it was. Maybe like if you can't like step back and go, Oh, okay. So you, you, you played these cards, which gave you this better uh, ratio of dice or whatever it is. It's, it's so good for people to be able to backtrack and go, Oh, okay. Okay. Next time we play, I'm going to do this. And then, and then I bet you I'll win and just kind of have that exactly. metagame. It's so much better than 
than abstracting everything to the point where it's like, I don't, I don't know, you know, and again, that gets back to your theme as far as like making the mechanics fit with the theme. So it makes sense, you know, so for my football game, it's like, okay, you won because your quarterback is a beast and he's rolling better dice than my guys over here. My, your offense is better than my defense. That's why you won that game. Okay. That makes sense. You know, it's Mm -hmm. okay. So I need to up, up my offensive game and do play these cars and do this and this, that all makes sense in the realm of that theme. Yeah, there's one of your teams, I think it was like the Yellow Jackets, and once that card came up, I'm like, oh crap, this is the really big defensive team. Mm-hmm. Like, this team is just going to roll all X's and cancel out all my defensive scores, yep. you know? So, yeah, and that's the, the it's a perfect thematic fit, because like, you know, suddenly I see like the Tampa Bay Bucks, the Baltimore Ravens, you know, I'm seeing Ray Lewis on the other side. Okay, I know, I know what kind of team they are. Right, exactly. And so... Figuring out how to abstract it in a way that it makes sense, I think, goes a long way uh, in, in accomplishing the experience you're trying to accomplish. Now, what, what advice do you have for somebody that's working on a game? Maybe their notebook is just packed full of all these ideas and all these things, and the scope's gotten way out of hand. What, what is your advice to anybody working on a game right now to help them rein it all in, to help them figure out what to cut, not to cut, that kind of thing? All right, well, if that's your first game, I'd say – Take a step back and make a smaller game, you know, because uh, so I was working on developing a game at one point and the designer of the game wanted these really crazy wild swings of luck to happen and for the players to have to deal with them. But um, it was a two hour strategy game and he would report that play testers would get frustrated and they would be unhappy with that. And, you know, I told him. How about you take that and you put that into a 30-minute card game instead? Yeah. You know, because if you throw wild swings of luck into a 30-minute par- card game, people don't mind it. You know, they kind of expect that in a card game. Whereas if you put that in a two-hour strategy game, people want their decisions to have a much more meaning in a two-hour strategy game. So, um, you know, th- this is why it's always good to start small. You know, start with a small, manageable product. You know, get back to the theme of the show. Keep the scope small. You know, with a smaller scope... Uh, you you have more uh, control. Now, that brings up other problems. If you have a smaller game with lighter rules, you're going to get a big lesson in emergent complexity, you know, because if you change rule A, then rule B is going to break. So then you change rule B, rule C is going to break. Then you change rule C, and rules A and B are going to break. So, you know, which I think is a good understanding in, in how game design works and how much respect you have to have toward making little changes in your game and the ripple effects they can have. But nevertheless, keeping that scope small and manageable, like say, even if you have this like really big, huge game, uh, like here's a great, here's, so this is what, what, one thing one of my friends did is he had this big, huge game and he said, you know, I'm going to make a roll and write version of this game, made a roll and write version of the game. And then he went back to his original game. He just distilled it back down to a smaller and more streamlined game. And he wound up, he realized that what he cut was a bunch of dead weight, a bunch of things that didn't work. So uh, if you have like this big sprawling behemoth of a game, try making just like a 15, 20 minute roll and write version of the game or a 15, 20 minute trick taking version of the game or or like a really quick, simple version of the game that keeps like maybe 75 percent of the game's soul. And you'll be amazed at how much more efficient that game is at telling the story you want to tell than the big, huge thing with all the details, you know, Um 
also you get to, you you get it to the table a lot faster because your scope is smaller. You're saying, well, it's just like fifty cards. I can make fifty cards. It's just eighteen cards. I can make eighteen cards. Yeah. You you get it out a lot faster rather than well, I've got to make the three hundred card terrain <laughs> deck and then I've got right. to come up with these fifteen boards. You know, um, so you don't want to do that. Now, if you do have to work on that big behemoth of the game. Uh, look for like a minimum viable product. Like yeah. if it's scenario based, start with one scenario. If it's asymmetric, throw out the asymmetry at first. Uh, I'm not saying permanently throw it out. I'm just saying put it aside for a moment and just make a base game with vanilla player powers uh, and see if that works. You know, it doesn't have to work 100%. Just make sure that it's something that players are invested in. And once that works, then put the asymmetry in. Once you've got like a basic thing going, you know, so you're setting boundaries, you know, you're artificially limiting the scope, you know, uh, already. I mean, hopefully designers should know at this point, don't stress too hard about graphic design. Yeah. Like that should be in your scope. Uh, it should be something that looks clean and simple, but it's not something that you break your back making. Um, and just anything that adds complexity without uh, anything that puts too much uh, to the game's complexity budget, in the words of Richard Garfield, like keep a close eye on that and maybe postpone it, if not totally get rid of it. Yep. It's okay to play a game for a few rounds, just to just to see how it works. I call it Calvin balling. Like just Calvin ball your game for 15 minutes. Say, okay, we're gonna play 15 minutes of my game. We're just gonna Calvin ball it. We're gonna make up some rules, um, and maybe on the fly you'll be like, okay, this isn't working. How about we try this rule instead? Yep. And just it's it's almost like a a brainstorming. I, I know some friends who call it playstorming. Uh, you just you're just trying to try a bunch of different things, you know. And again, I'm echoing Rob. You know, a piece of advice Rob gave. But it's the same thing, you know. You you want to uh, give. You want to limit the scope of your tests to something that's reasonable and make sure you got the foundation of your game good. And then once you got the foundation good, you can start to expand the scope. You know, um, a game like Gloomhaven wasn't tested. 100% out of the box. You know, it was tested in bits and spurts. Right. Uh, you know, these big, heavy games, they're not tested all in once. They're tested in a modular fashion. You start with a little bit, and then you add a little more, then you add a little more, then you add a little more. Uh, painting is a really good way to make these really big, heavy games, because otherwise, if you try to sculpt those games, you wind up with something that you know, your playtesters were going to hate you, because they got to go through like a two-hour rules explanation of something that you don't know is going to work or not. So, so yeah, that's my advice for those people is, uh, is make a minimum viable product. Yeah, and I think another big thing is don't ever be afraid to just do anything. Like, for instance, like you were saying, you know, a guy saying, okay, I've got this two-hour strategy game. What if I turn it into a roll-and-write game? What then? Like, don't be afraid. Like, you have permission to do whatever you want. There is no right or wrong necessarily. Just try to figure it out because you, you might end up with a game you never expected. My my football game started as a wrestling game. It was about professional <laughs> wrestling and you're building up your arena and you're bringing these wrestlers in and putting them against each other. And it just got to a point where it did not work. And I stepped back and I said, what if it was different? What if it was football? Mm -hmm. And I tried that and, and, and it worked like, it was like, Oh man, this, this might be a, a something really, you know, that would work. Or last night I was working on a different game and I stepped back from it and I said, okay, what if the whole thing was different? And so I got yeah. rid of the board. I got rid of these tokens. I got rid of this this track where you're you know calculating these things. I got rid of all that, and then played it. And it was like, huh, it's better now. Like I didn't mm -hmm. lose anything, and it's it's mm -hmm. faster. It's cheaper to produce all these things. It's like, huh. So you you know if you're designing a game, you have permission to change everything about it. You know, yeah. and, and and never forget that. Even if you're far along in the development of it, never never feel like you can't 
is take a big step back and go, no, we're going we're gonna to totally redo that or totally change that, totally get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Now, Gil, do you got any kind of closing thoughts? Remember that if you, like as we mentioned before, if you have something that you built the game around um, and uh, it's not working anymore, you don't owe it anything. It's yeah. scaffolding. You right. can remove it, uh, maybe build another game around it, but uh, for this game, you're what you're looking to do is you're trying to make the best experience possible. And if it means removing what you originally built the game around, then go ahead and do it. Um and just try to make sure you know what the game scope is at the start. Uh, a big scope is not necessarily a good scope. Um, it's better to have a small, focused, targeted scope than this big, meandering, sprawling scope, especially if you're new to game design. Yeah. You know, your, your idea might be, to go back to Star Wars, your idea might be Obi-Wan Kenobi. Its job is not to be there the whole time. Its job is to get you to a certain point and then die. That's its job. Yes. And that's yep. okay. And just keep traveling down that journey, and eventually you become Luke Skywalker. So you become a Jedi. Nice analogy. You like nice that? analogy. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Gil, man, really appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate your time. Uh, we're about to head over to a bonus round. We're going to talk about drafting, the mechanism of drafting, and why it's such a really good mechanism. The Networks uses a really cool drafting uh, mechanic in that game. I want to hear your thoughts on that. And so just good luck with, with everything you got going on business-wise and design-wise and all that. Thanks so much, Gabe. Yep. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for listening. Find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at BoardGameDesignLab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?